Hi, I'm Janar, and my underlap is my office. I do mathematical analysis and economic analysis as well, and I have a lot of books on gender economics, gender studies, gender and government in my office. So that's the place where I can gain knowledge and give back. Hi, it's Maria here. Welcome to the second episode of Alice in Wonder Lab, a podcast about science and the women who make it. Today, we will dive into gender economics, together with Janar Konis, from the Solvay Brussels School of Economics and Management. My name is Janar, Janar Konis, and I'm a PhD candidate at ICARES, which stands for European Centre for Advanced Studies in Economics and Statistics. And I do my PhD in gender economics. I was born in a small village in Kazakhstan, where usually girls um, graduate from their high school and get married and have four or five kids. And that's the best scenario. <laughs> But um, since my father was not that conservative and he always supported me, somehow I have chosen a different path. I think the interest to economics came uh, naturally and gradually since I saw people doing economics around me. I saw uh, my uncles teaching economics at universities. So um, I gained this uh, some knowledge through osmosis, let's say. So after my bachelor and master's, with my um, master in economics diploma, I went to industry. I worked as an internal auditor for three years. Internal auditor means that I work for, for a corporation which has 27 subsidiaries um, in each city of Kazakhstan. And as an auditor, I go and investigate their operational and strategic business I give some recommendation in order to decrease their risks in the future. That's what I did. I, I, I very much liked that job. Even though she liked her corporate job, Janar felt that something was calling her back to academia and research. The day when I left my village to go to the capital city to start my bachelor studies, my father told me that in our extended family there were six doctors And no one was a female. So he told me that I should have become the first female PhD in my extended family. So I didn't follow my father's instructions directly. After my master's, I wanted some industry experience and I got it. I very much liked that experience, but I still felt that helping a person, helping a company is not that much large scale. If you do it fundamentally, if you do it in a scientific way, 
and then you can help more people, more society, more companies, let's say. So I came back to academia as a research master's student. So that was my um, second master's at KU Leuven in Belgium. And I started uh, doing hard economics, let's say, because uh, when you do research master, it's very intensive and it's not about business or, I don't know, marketing, um, anything, but it is about digging deeper. So trying to find uh, economic processes and their causalities, the mechanisms that make economics work. If I ask you if you associate economics with trade or business cycles or exchange rates or inflation, GDP, probably you will answer yes, because that's the obvious fields of economics. But what if if I ask you um, whether you see any economics in um, the choice of uh, kindergarten for your children, for example, or the speed limit on a highway, or the number of doctors at the hospital in, in your neighborhood? Is that economics or not? And the answer is yes, it is also economics, because economics is about about the choices, about the behavior of people. Economics is about the allocation of limited resources while we have unlimited wants. People face trade-offs. You have limited time, you have limited energy, people might have limited household income and limited opportunities. Uh, Do you decide to work one hour more today or sleep more? Which one gives you more utility? And Uh, In the same way, societies face uh, difficulties, trade-offs. For example, should we spend our state budget or half of our state budget on a military or on education or on health problems? That's um, something um, that economists work on all the time. As a PhD candidate, Janar joined a team that is working on the economic development of Central Asia by studying a unique collection of data. My PhD thesis is about the gender inequality in Central Asia. Before Soviet Union, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, these two Central Asian countries and with uh, mostly Muslim population, uh, they were more conservative, more traditional. The societies gave less role to women, less privileges, let's say. Then Soviet Union came, and as we know, and it's, it's written in the constitution of the USSR, it guarantees equality for women, and women um, became a vital part of mobilization into the workforce. Uh, so my purpose is to see, to define if cultural transmission channels have more power than government policies or not. If this traditional... Uh, conservative societies could still keep their gender norms or the Soviet Union government could change uh, mindset of the society in terms of uh, social attitudes, gender norms. Uh, We have historical data from the Russian imperial statistical expeditions in Kazakhstan and they are conducted at the end of 19th and beginning of 20th century Um, and we have very detailed 
data, which contains many, many variables like the size of the land, the size of the households, number of people, a number of people in each tribe, for example. I was very curious to see what this data looked like, so I asked Zanar to show me. Without thinking that I was supposed to know Russian. Um, this data is very, very unique because it's very old and it's very, very detailed. Here, for example, you can see it in Russian. Um, you don't speak Russian? I don't. <laughs> and, I, and I can't read. <laughs> yeah, okay, but uh, I mean, uh, your name, Maria, it somehow sounded uh, like a Slavic name, no? I'm Italian. Are you Italian? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm totally wrong. So this is a picture from uh, of a page of the books on which they printed out the yes. results. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, there were two types of data. Uh, this was, for example, um, the tables, I mean, with numbers, numbers of uh, their land, um, houses, uh, horses, dogs, people, uh, daughters and sons, and the extended family. And the other type was um, descriptive, so they were describing the quality of that land or the um, life habits of those people or how uh, people interact with each other because um, Central Asian culture is quite different from the one that Russian Empire had at that time. So they tried to not just to um, count their land and horses, but they also put some um, stress on their culture and the relationship between the extended family. So uh, in um, Kazakhs and Kyrgyz also they have this... Um, Economists use numbers as a magnifying glass to look at the world we live in, to analyze it, to understand it. For her study, Zanar is going to look at numbers such as women's age of death, the ratio between female and male deaths, and the average age of the male and female population, to see if pre-Soviet gender norms in the society of Central Asia persisted or changed across the 20th century. So the data is quite detailed. So to see this gender norms persistence, I need some variable uh, on which my conclusions will be based. We cannot measure gender norms. We cannot ask people who is like 100 years old how uh, he or she uh, perceives gender norms and someone who is younger, which would be the easiest way to, to do uh, this investigation. However, uh, that would be very biased. It would be very subjective. So for that, we need some variables from the past and from the present. So we have female mortality rate and gender ratio. Um, from the past, and we have uh, up-to-date surveys of Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan population. So we can use these two data, combine them, and uh, find if there is persistence in gender norms or not. If the vocation to become an economist came from her family, the choice to go into gender economics was dictated by even deeper personal reasons. Uh, five years ago, I moved to Belgium due to family reasons. And after coming to Belgium and becoming a mom, um, I decided to go back to academia. 
So I started my research master's in economics. Then I was doing my research um, on macroeconomics. Uh, it was about price rigidity. And I found myself in a strange situation where I got divorced and I became a single mom. Uh, so I had to take care of my son while struggling to finish my graduate studies. And I had no work permit to start working. So I really wondered how um, this could happen to someone who was very ambitious, who had clear career plans and who was a successful auditor in back in her own country. How come that she cannot even start working and uh, she... Uh, had to struggle in a new country with no help at all. Um, while pandemic is happening, uh, it means a lot of restrictions, no daycare, um, everything is closed. So uh, I think it was that moment when I changed my mind. So the first thing that I did after my divorce is um, I sent an email to my professor, to my uh, research master thesis supervisor, saying that, sorry, I cannot price rigidity research anymore, that I just have realized that that's not my topic. I want to switch to gender economics. So that's how I came to gender economics. I reached out to a young professor, uh, also from Caio Leuven. His name is Eduardo Ciscato, who fully supported my ideas. And my idea was to investigate the impact of marriage on the gender pay gap. How is it possible that even ambitious women, even highly educated women, start earning less after their marriage? So... Um, Professor Ciscato um, supervised me. Then we started working together on um, analyzing the UK data and trying to find um, the evolution, the divergence of wives' and husbands' salaries. And this research we did with Professor Ciscato became my advanced master thesis and will become uh, the first chapter of my PhD thesis. So usually when I start a project, the first thing that needs to be done is a literature review. Um, some people recommend me not to do it first because uh, then it anchors your own ideas and own views, but I like to do it that way, then I can, can combine it with what I have in mind. Also, it prevents me from doing something which is already done. And this investigation stage, let's say. I consider it to be the first part of my research. Second is uh, empirical analysis, where I do coding, where I do some math, where I test my results, where I plot my results. And the last part is writing. I wanted to know more about the nitty-gritty of empirical analysis. So Janar showed me the work she did for her master's thesis. As already said, it all begins with data, that is, numbers. Number two, female, Number married, one, age, male, 33, single, children. This is the UK data, let's open this one. So here I can see the data. This is the person's number. Um, this is the household number. So if there are three people in a household, the first person, the father, for example, it is given the number one, the mother is number two, and the child is number three, for example. Age, 
and the, their income, birth years, um, how many hours they uh, recently they spent working, how many hours uh, they spent uh, taking care of a child. So I have a lot of data. Weekly working hours, 40, income, 85,000. Apparently, before you can use any collection of data, you have to clean it up. Well, it's actually a more meticulous cleaning. So, uh, here I do data cleaning. That's mm -hmm. a, a very boring job, but it takes a lot of time. And what, what does it mean? It, it means um, getting rid of um, um, unnecessary variables, for example. In my case, I analyzed men and women separately, and I saw that among these 200,000 people, there were um, four people who changed their sex during, during those 20 years I analyzed. So I had to get rid of them as well, because I, can, like, I cannot consider them as, an, as a woman before and then men. Um, then I'm, I'm just going to use the same person twice, which will affect my results. So mm -hmm. um, another question is, um, for example, their age. For some people, I don't have their age because they didn't answer the question about their birth year. That's why I had to find those people and also get rid of them. Because in my case, age is a quite important variable. Not available. Number three, male, single, age, not available. Once the data are cleaned up, they are ready to be fed into a computer program. But the program needs to know what you want it to do with those numbers. So, there is some coding involved. If programmers see uh, us coding, economists or researchers, they might laugh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's not like real coding, I'm not creating a program or something. But we have some softwares like Stator or R or MATLAB and others that we use. Mostly we use Stator. It has uh, its own language, so uh, it's very easy. So th uh, there are very commonly used commands um, like generate or regress or tabulate or save. Um, if I have some difficulties, I can just Google and I will find any command that I need. Um, and you tell the software to do this for me, regress these variables on this one and then give me the results. Here, I definitely needed an extra bit of explanation. The regression is um, a process where you um, see how one variable influences the other one. How the change in the inflation rate of a country changed the unemployment rate of this country or how um, the year of education, the total years of education of a person is going to affect his or her income. So one variable is dependent, one variable is independent, and the, the correlation between uh, those two uh, is defined and shown by running a regression. Okay. Okay, now I got it. Yeah. Good. So the software can answer questions such as how does the variation of this number influence that number? And the answer is, guess what? 
Another number. 15. A number called coefficient. 73. 27.4. Economists can look at coefficients and understand what they mean at a glance. But to make the meaning of these numbers understandable to a broader public, or even to discuss them with other economists, they eventually plot them into charts, graphs and diagrams. For example, um, for my previous project, I plotted uh, the results and I got this. So it's, uh, it's something that everyone can understand. Um, when, when I, if I show you the coefficients, it might be not so obvious that the salaries of men and women uh, are going to diverge after their marriage. But if I show you this, it is um, quite understandable that this is zero is the year of marriage. The solid line is uh, salary of um, women and the dashed line is for men. This is one year before marriage, two years before marriage and three years before marriage. And uh, that, that's the opposite, so one year after marriage, two Three, four, five, six. You see that after marriage, it diverse in, in, in the opposite way. So women's income, relatively to men's income, goes down, and men's income goes up. And that's my main finding: that um, getting married is not a good idea for women <laughs> in terms of income. <laughs> so the final part would be data visualization. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So to, to present in front of uh, other researchers. The same set of data is analyzed multiple times. The codes are adjusted, different variables are taken into account, and the resulting coefficients are accurately scrutinized. It takes just a click to run a regression, but it takes a lot of painstaking effort to obtain reliable results. Um, no one is going to believe on your results if you run it once. Maybe there are some lucky researchers that, that d do that, uh, but uh, me and my colleagues and, uh, cannot be sure that our results from the first trial is correct. Uh, so we do it several times. Also, um, uh, you are going to present your work in front of uh, other researchers that more or less familiar with, with your topic. At least they, they know how to do economic analysis. They know how to run these codes. So they're going to ask for some additional um, tests to be conducted. Um, and most of the time uh, we do some tests to prove the liability of uh, those results, coefficients. And uh, if you see some inconsistency between those coefficients, then I think, okay, something is wrong with my codes, then you go back again and start doing everything again. Janar's personal story did not just motivate her to go into gender economics. It also made her a strong advocate for diversity and inclusion. She sees academic research as the starting point for deep changes in our society. Gender economics uh, has different perspectives. Uh, so in some cases it's human rights, it is uh, discrimination, it's sexual harassment, uh, education. In my case, I directly follow their labor economics part. So my biggest goal is to give women the same job opportunities, the same career possibilities as men. I do not want my research, my findings to stay only in academia, but um, I would like them to bring some impact in and beyond academia. So my main purpose is 
to empower women in terms of uh, labor force participation so that women could feel themselves the same as men. So I would like to change some things such as glass sailing or child penalty or marriage penalty. And to change these things, my research will not be enough. That's for sure, because it is too small. It is, it is not significant given the barriers we have. But collectively, together with other, other researchers, together with other politicians, we can do it. Uh, so far, I see the obvious path to bring changes from academia to the society, and it is uh, through policies through public policies, through uh, the influence of politicians, international institutions such as United Nations Women, for example, or Euro Commission. So I think it is quite possible if we do it collectively. Being a single mom and a PhD researcher, Zonar has two full-time jobs, and she manages both very well. Her experience in academia so far has been positive and encouraging. I find academia to be uh, an equal place for both genders, at least on my level, on, on the level of junior researcher. I don't feel any discrimination. And even uh, being a single mom, I can do my job because it is flexible. People are open-minded. People are very polite. I never heard any story about being interrupted or not being answered, while I hear this kind of stories a lot from the industry. Uh, the, the industrial environment is quite dynamic, the business environment as well, and there is more pressure than in academia, I mean external pressure. In academia, I feel a lot of internal pressure where I have to make myself work hard. However, in industry, you feel um, the same from outside. And probably because of this pressure and competition between them, um, they have to or they're used to discriminate while I find myself in a good place in academia. As a single mom, I am um, satisfied with the conditions I have now because I can combine my studies, my job with my parenting time. Um, my son is four years old and he already visited a thesis defense of my colleague, a conference on gender economics, several seminars. So his CV is quite colorful <laughs> already. Yeah, uh, that's the way I try to not miss anything so I can do my uh, work while being a parent and I think it's also good for my son and also the another point is about flexibility so I can do my um, research or empirical analysis at home when he goes to sleep during evenings um, so I think it is quite possible to um, combine academia and parenting even for single moms when we talk to uh, my colleagues or friends, uh, usually they don't have kids and they start talking about diving <laughs> or hiking. But my life is different and I guess more cheerful because I visit museums, zoos, kinder um, playgrounds. 
some special places for kids, kids' parties almost every week, and that's what I do in my spare time. <laughs> it took some time to get used to, to this, uh, to too much second childhood, let's say, but I like it. When I have like real spare time, um, when the kid goes to sleep, let's say, I do yoga. I also like reading. I, I love reading. Mm, I have to read a lot because of my work, and that's uh, scientific literature, that might be business literature, but I like fiction. My most favorite books are about exotic countries, at least exotic to me. Once upon a time, there was a grandmother and a grandfather living together. Then the grandfather asked his wife to cook him a bawrsak, which is a, a traditional Kazakh bread, a fried one. And then the wife cooked that for him. That is how the Kazakh fairy tale starts. But my son listens to another version. Uh, in our version, um, that's the grandfather who cooks Bawrsak. So this way I want to let him know that cooking is not a woman's job only. It can be done by men and women as well. I don't want my child to uh, grow up thinking that cooking and ironing are responsibilities of a woman and being a breadwinner, that's the only responsibility of men. So that's why I reverse all the rules described in Kazakh fairy tales. Given that the field is still a bit of a niche, and given the narrowness of Zanar's research topic, some of her colleagues were not sure whether her choice of going into gender economics was the best one for her future career. Until she posted this on her LinkedIn page. I am looking for a husband. My future husband doesn't need to work after marriage. There will be a lot of unpaid housework to do, cooking, cleaning, ironing, etc. However, if he still prefers to go to work, a part-time job would be perfect. Yes, he will be financially dependent on me and it is okay. Moreover, I want to have several children with him. Therefore, I can only see my future husband in family-friendly workplaces. I also discourage him from entering into such fields as science, technology, engineering and mathematics. We all know that those fields require raw intellectual talent. In addition, I do not believe that my future husband will be promoted to managerial positions at his work. All employers understand that a man who has housework to do and children to raise, cannot be a committed and purpose-driven employee. In fact, it also works better for me if he pays more attention to our kids and family dinners, than to his business trips and late conference calls. Last, but not least, I expect him to be smiley and gentle. Individual opinions, ambitions and decisiveness are considered as forms of aggression and selfishness. This is a fictionalized abstract of a master's thesis, which got 188 shares, 432 comments, 
and more than 7,000 likes. These numbers clearly show that gender economics is where Janar belongs. Alice in Wonderlab is a production of Khaled Acoustics. Huge thanks to Janar Konis for sharing her life experience with me and patiently walking me through the meanders of data analysis. You will find photos from our interview, as well as materials from her master's research, on Khaled Acoustics' Facebook page and on the blog post dedicated to this episode at www.khalidacoustics.com blog. Alice in Wonderlab will go on as an independent podcast, which means that, unfortunately, the episodes will come out less regularly than I would like. But the podcast is now available on Spotify and two new episodes are already in the pipeline. So if you want more, subscribe and drop a review. I'd love to hear from you. And you will hear from me soon. In the meantime, spread the word.